tulpa. There is a certain quality to suburban homes at night, especially when you are alone. This quality is magnified to an almost unbearable intensity if the house is especially quiet. If you can hear someone upstairs drinking a glass of water in bed from the living room. If the floorboards record acutely every stocking padded footstep. He'd broken the TV over a college football game. He was 35. So was she. That sort of thing wasn't a stated reason for her breaking up with him. But it wasn't far from the front of her mind as she broke the news to him, either. And now she wished, deeply, bordering on desperate, that he was here. The TV was broken, and it was very, very quiet. Three years was a long commitment to throw away, and 35 certainly felt a bit old to be starting anything new from scratch. But until tonight, the positive feelings had well outpaced the negative. She'd done the right thing. On that, she did not waver could not waver. She'd done the right thing. She'd lived in this house for a year and a half, and had never more than politely waved at her neighbors across the street. What name would she even call out if she pulled back her shower curtain and found a man with a long knife leering at her? The most Freudian of murder fantasies. And don't stab wounds look so pedestrian? Just little irregularities. A white pickup truck drove slowly down the street, Public Works orange light flashing across all the garages and gently sloping lawns along the block. Low motor hum, pumping out a steady fog of pesticide. She was trying to read a book. A real book. A serious book. It had been years. College. She wanted to be someone who read serious books. It was so quiet, she splashed a bit of red wine on her couch when the air conditioner kicked in outside the window. She wasn't alone in this house. A fly buzzed past her face, lingered, ignored the impotent flapping of her hand, past her ear. She focused on it, tried in earnest to swat him. He flew away. In life, flies are an annoyance. In death, we belong to them. Once we will sit still long enough, once we can no longer swat, time is on their side. Again, she was staring at the page probably had been for five minutes, and not reading a word. The inked shapes snapped back into focus. Her ears had been working, probing, waiting. Last time she'd actually been reading, she swore she heard something, barely, a sound unnoticed on intake, only half perceived as it was being filed away somewhere in the back of her mind. What had it been? A collection of small moths had gathered at her window where it was lit. A spider large enough to cover her palm entered the scene, its white belly glowing in the lamplight. She watched in horror as its lithe legs closed the distance, slowly at first, and then all at once, hunting the moths. Why didn't they fly away? Were they frozen with fear? Some even crawled toward it. Outside, the kudzu bobbed easily in the breeze, the leaves turning and flashing in the moonlight. She'd let the vines overtake every tree in the yard before a friend told her it was invasive. It strangles the trees, you know, chokes off all their light and steals their water. And they brought it here on purpose, to Philadelphia for the World's Fair. She decided she liked it anyway. It was already crawling over the garden shed. In her dreams, the curling green tendrils engulfed the house and swallowed her, 
digested her in warm, pungent darkness. Someday. Someday. But what had she heard? Creak of old wood? Someone shifting their weight ever so slightly from one foot to the other? Her, the fly, and who else? Was it him? The thought shot to the front of her brain, launched seemingly from some outside source, or else somewhere deep within the recesses of her own subconscious. How angry was he? You think you know somebody after three years, what they're capable of. The man behind the curtain with the long knife. Her high school boyfriend had stalked her, followed her to university, showed up at her dorm with flowers and a stuffed sea lion and a box of chocolates, and refused to leave until campus security escorted him out. But no knife that she knew of. Only some embarrassingly earnest poetry and public proclamations and a stream of tears that were uncomfortable for them both. What had she heard? Sweaty palm gripping the stair balustrade? No, no, she was scaring herself. Any distraction to avoid actually reading. She saw herself. She was in the bathroom. She was outside of her own body. She saw a fly crawl over her glassy green eye. He rubbed his hands together greedily, like a fat prospector splashing in the wash basin before visiting the horse tent. Her sister was the only dead person she'd seen before an undertaker. There was a big argument at dinner, fists slamming the table, cross-shouting, and her sister stomped up the stairs and slammed the door behind her. When she went in a few hours later before bed to apologize, her sister was nowhere to be found until she looked in the closet. Her fists were clenched, and the veins on her neck were etched like pale tattoos. Outside the window, an owl called. The whole development was less than a decade old. The trees on the front lawns were little more than saplings, and the sky over the whole suburb felt too big, the broad streets too exposed. The houses were set back, far away from the road and each other. But the woods behind her yard were something much older and much darker. She poured herself another glass of wine, finishing the bottle. She was 13, her sister 16. 16 forever. Teeth clenched and lips pulled back taut in agony, like a melpomene mask. Suddenly so old, so pitiable, grown even older than their parents in the space of an instant, of an uneventful school night downstairs doing dishes and watching television lost to time, and gone to the other side of the river to wait for them in the land of death. The way the extension cord rubber squeaked, so tight was the knot pulled. So light in life, weightless girlhood turned unthinkably heavy, a pure subject of gravity. One of the chorus of crickets made a brief solo for himself, just outside the window, moving around an octave above the rest. If she let the edges of her vision blur, she could see the vines climbing inch by inch across the shed roof, grasping for more, always grasping. It would be devoured before the sun rose. There was a candle burning in the bathroom she'd have to remember to blow out before bed. Suddenly, she was very conscious of the windows, those black boxes, the dull reflection of her reading lamp. She was on display, up and down the block. There was a light at the nearest street corner, which only served to make everything around it even darker. A moth, disconcertingly large, landed on the other side of the glass, trying to get at her lamp. 
After several attempts, he gave up and just sat there, content to look at it from a distance. She'd played high school volleyball with a girl named Shelby, who went to state for her freshman year and never made it back for Thanksgiving break. Saturday morning in October, homecoming, her sorority was hosting a tailgate party in the stadium parking lot. Late enough in the semester to have made some friends, young enough to still care very much what each and every one of her peers thought about her. It happened at a hot dog eating contest, meant somehow to benefit some charity. There were six people on the stage, two girls besides Shelby and three boys. Her friends had volunteered her for it, gently but firmly nudged her toward the stage. Knowing Shelby, she hadn't really wanted to, but once enough attention had been drawn to her, how could she say no? Probably she walked up the steps to the stage wondering how friendly the nudging had really been. Was she the butt of a long-running joke? Were these girls really even her friends? They were snickering even now, she was sure of it. Not quite a minute in, two dogs down the throat already. Maybe she and the girl next to her were neck and neck. They say she lost herself in the moment. Her trepidation fell away and she threw herself back upon the plate of dogs with redoubled gusto, perhaps sensing a chance to win, even giggling between bites, mouth stuffed full of bun matter. It took a moment for anyone in the audience to realize that something was wrong. Likely Shelby had fought hard to suppress the anguish, the animal fear which had no place at such a fun, breezy event. Joy soured in one moment, one wrong twitch of the throat muscles, into panicked embarrassment. Perhaps she tried to hide her face. The tears, thundering temple veins, skin glowing red. She hit the floor. It was over soon after. She died right there on the stage as everyone watched. Helpless, hot dogs still lodged in her airway. Surely there was screaming and crying. But, they say, more than anything, there was silence. The concerned, confused stares of her classmates. The raised eyebrows of a blonde girl somewhere near the back. The boy from her biology class in the front row, half drunk and asking his friend what was going on. A sunny day. A hot day, even in the shade of the bleachers. One of those fall weekends where summer comes roaring back for an encore of 24 or 48 hours. Some guy in neon sunglasses and a tank top saying, uh, is she all right? A stage that would be torn down five hours later. What a place for it to end. They never crowned a winner. The ambulance moved slowly through the mass of charcoal grills and yard games and rows of wide-eyed students stood by dumbstruck and staring at the asphalt or off into the cornfield distance beyond the parking lot, many of them visibly drunk or high, giving the silent, flashing vehicle the birth due death's chariot. From embarrassment to emergency to existential struggle in under 10 seconds. Was there a moment left at the end for resignation, for harried, frantic contemplation? 17 years later, and she remembers this, remembers the plush carpet funeral thick with ferns, her mother's gleaming tear-streaked cheeks, crushed velvet curtains swallowing anything above a whisper. She thinks about Shelby more than she thinks about almost anyone she knew in high school. The house was terribly quiet, unbearably quiet. She was not alone. She knew this, smoldering in her stomach she knew it, and at the same time had never been less certain of anything in her life. Certainly, there was little in the way of hard evidence to support the claim. No, 
It was a feeling. But feelings counted, right? Feelings kept us alive when we lived in trees and in caves. But what feelings could be trusted which emerged wholly formed from the mind alone? Sans bodily input, like an artificial diamond of concentrated mental anguish, lab-grown fear, and paranoia, but molecularly identical to the real thing, and indistinguishable to the sympathetic nervous system. Pure thought, free from the impurity of sensory input of the outside. A mind focusing back on itself, like the sun through a magnifying glass burning a hole through her amygdala. But the doors were locked. She checked all the upstairs rooms and closed the windows when it started to get dark. There was nothing to suggest anything out of the ordinary. Her brain was so loud in all this quiet. She'd manufactured the feeling and she knew it, and it didn't matter. She felt it as strongly as if she was hearing muddy boots pacing the floorboards above her head. They say that if you smile enough, you can make yourself happy. If you imagine yourself strangled, windpipe crushed beneath impossibly strong, dirt-creased hands, eyes bulging, strength fading, lying in a pool of your own blood. Pascal for women home alone in dark houses with a very bad feeling in their gut. If they don't trust it, and it's right, the last thought through their mind will be, I fucking knew it. If they do trust it, because they cannot ignore it, what would be so bad about that? It had been several hours, and who would know if she went up to check the second-story bedrooms again just to settle her nerves? There was nobody around to call her hysterical, except for herself. Only 10% of murders are committed by strangers. The walls of the house melted away. She could hear the crickets all around, as if she were crouched in the bush beside her. Not so far from her chair, really. Only a matter of a few feet, some drywall. The meager physical touches which construct mighty mental walls. Generations spent building and tidying an illusion that we are outside of nature, above it. Illusion shattered in a moment of prey animal clarity, of cold tingling nerves along the ridge of her back. Primeval state of nature equipment, a lifetime dormant thawing, awakening at some secretly pre-programmed pheromonal trigger phase. Maybe the fear wasn't a wholly rationalized forebrain invention. Every step of the stairs creaked, the whole agonizing ascent like a trip over an out-of-tune piano. They used to joke that the neighbors could have guessed which stair they were on from their own kitchen. Were the neighbors home now? A great gust stiffened the house against its timbers, a generalized groaning of weary architecture. She was nearly to the top step when she paused, remembering the bathroom candle downstairs. Maybe she ought to go back and snuff it now, while she was thinking of it. Should she grab a knife? Their first Halloween together, she drunkenly sliced her palm open, stabbing into a pumpkin. The knife handle was slick with viscera, and when the blade stopped, her hand did not. He had stared at the blood, mouth making little silent vowels like a fish, more shocked than she was. She bandaged her own wound while he breathed deeply and tried not to throw up or pass out. Back of his hand on his forehead, every few minutes asking if he should call 911. Where was he right now? Was he counting her steps up the stairs? Was he standing six feet away from her right now in the linen closet, straight-backed, palms grazing the bath towels? Thinking of the same old joke, wondering about those same neighbors? How long had she been holding her breath? 
the wind rose again. It sounded like the precursor to a mighty storm. That man had followed her a long way toward home, leaving the store that afternoon. He was walking on the other side of the street, maybe half a block behind her. Her nervous glances must have tipped him off as he turned down a street a few blocks away from her house. That was the narrative she was now telling herself anyway. At 4 p.m., when the sun was still in the sky, she'd said, well, of course that's where he lives. The first raindrops began spattering the windows. Were those tennis shoes in the darkness behind the closet door? Or mere shadows? The harder she looked, the less sure she became. And then she flew up the last couple of steps, feet barely grazing the floor, legs leaving her thinking brain behind entirely, and she flung open the door. There was nobody inside. Of course. She had always known. She was less sure, however, about the bathroom and three dark bedrooms lighting the hallway. In eight minutes, a dozen police could be in her house, heavy patent leather shoes tracking mud across the carpet, their shoulders somehow too wide for the hallway, as if her house were built at three-quarters scale. Low orderly chatter of men at routine work, turning the private spaces of her life into a place of business, throwing open her front door to public spectacle. But eight minutes could be a long time, and there was a lot that could happen in even 60 seconds. Eight minutes could be a lifetime. Behind door number one, the guest bedroom, formerly his office. She flipped the switch as if she were reaching overboard to touch a shark fin and found that the place was somehow more terrible in the light than in the dark. He could come for her in the prosaic incandescent spaces just as he could come for her in the sinister dark, whoever he was. The scene was too familiar, too mundane, as if the neatly made bed and empty desk were conducting silent occult rituals to invite some monstrous disruption in to fill the blankness. But it was, and remained, empty. She checked. The bathroom was also empty, and she shut the lights off as soon as she had checked because she didn't like how the fan interrupted the silence. Pattering of rain on the roof. The next bedroom she'd always meant to turn into a sewing room, or an exercise room, or a combination sewing and exercise room. It held her grandmother's old sewing machine and a weight bench with dusty plastic 25-pound weights. Some of her coats were hung from the remaining length of the bar, and the Christmas tree stand was on the bench. But no maniac stalker, no jealous ex-boyfriend. So there was only her bedroom left then, where she still slept in the same king size, the same linen sheets. Was there room under there for a person? She wouldn't have thought so if you'd asked her six hours ago in the middle of the afternoon, not with the suitcases down there. Well, suitcase, now. But then, she'd never been motivated to try. Could someone crouch down behind the corner chair piled with clothes? Could they even hide themselves beneath the pile? She tried to conjure an image of the room from memory, turned on the light. They could not. How ridiculous to have ever thought so. Even a small child would have been immediately apparent. Just make sure about this room and you can stop worrying. Nothing to it. The relentless slamming of her heart against the inside of her rib cage said otherwise. She went to her knees and lifted the bed skirt, bent forward to look underneath. She was setting herself up now. She felt how utterly vulnerable she was in the breath of cool air which touched the small of her back beneath her rising shirt. It was as if she could not stand the tension, the not knowing, the endless charged silence, 
and was trying to will the final resolution into being, whatever that may be. She waited to hear the closet door open behind her, as if it were inevitable. She listened so intently, she forgot she was meant to be looking under the bed, into all those shadows. The closet door did not open. She saw nobody, heard nothing, save for the fly, buzzing in and out of the room, up and down the hall. And yet at no point in the entirety of that dreadful night up until that moment had she ever been so acutely assured that she was not, indeed, alone. It came less as a shock and more as a relief, an acceptance. And still, there was no evidence to the senses. Only this unbearable agony of waiting, the potency of the atmosphere in the room at that moment. Surely that could all not be born of nothing. Was it possible that she wanted to die? There was someone in the closet, someone crying. The rain was falling steadily now upon the shell of the house and growing heavier. The crying was not much more than a whimper. She was barely sure she was hearing it at all. A girl. She turned the knob silently and opened the closet door. The presence of another human body, so tangible, so near, caused a jolt to her system, a lurching halt of the machinery as her body rushed to provide the requisite amount of ice-cold fear hormone in a single load. It was a girl's back, a tall girl, too tall for her frame. No, not tall. She was slowly spinning around toward her, weightless and stiff beneath the rubber and copper noose her sister. Her eyes were glazed with death, but the tears were fresh, still wet on her pallid clay cheeks, and she was looking at her. It looked as if it took no minor effort and some considerable strain to open her mouth, and when she did, little emerged but a soft squeak, a dry, barely audible scraping of her two vocal cords. And then she was gone, turned back into an empty dress on a hanger. She stood there a while in disbelief. She'd seen her sister as sure as she'd felt the doorknob at her sweaty palm. But as one minute followed another, the hot-faced panic began to drain. Her wild beating heart came to heal. And yet, there was still something there. A putrid, low-simmering nausea which alerted her to the lingering presence of some fundamental wrongness. She stood tensed pure perception, not knowing where to look or what she was listening for. And then, someone coughed. All at once she saw, and she could not even scream. Like a stalking tiger in the tall grass, a bloodshot and blinking human eye between two shirts, a man standing behind the rack of clothes. She waited for him to burst through, for the fabric and leather and plastic hangers to explode. His arms would wrap around her, engulf everything. But he never did. And eventually she closed the door. She watched it, hardly breathing. For how long, she could not say. Her dilemma had turned around completely in a matter of moments. Now she felt she could not move, not even a step 
and risk upsetting whatever delicate, precarious balance of particles was keeping that closet door from opening. She stood there so long she began to wonder if somehow the man was another incarnation of whatever unsolid thing her sister had been. And then he spoke. Hello, he said. There was a touch of confusion to his voice, a lilt even of innocence. Hello, hello. This broke whatever spell was anchoring her in place and she began to back toward the door. As she did, he said, I can see you, I can see you. She studiously avoided all the noisy spots on the floor and made her way, step by step, to the stairs. She had one foot on the top step when the closet door opened. Patiently, steadily, she heard the hinges squeak. There was silence again then for the space of a few seconds. The wind rattled the windows in their frames. When it died down, it became clear that the rain had gone and the house was quieter than it had ever been. She could hear the blood rushing like a powerful river behind her ears, a tuning fork ringing in the vacuum, the sprouts of her hair on her eardrum shivering from want of something to do. And then he sighed. She felt it on her neck as if he was standing right behind her. She was off. The only thing she heard thereafter was the sound of her own feet pounding the stairs. She flung the door and flew across the sprinkler damp lawn, arrived wheezing for breath at the nearest police station three quarters of a mile away. A dementia patient at the nursing home had slipped the staff on a walk, wandered around a bit, got lost, scared, confused, found somewhere to hide when it got dark. No maniac, no shrill violins, no knife. But the one curious fact in the case which none of the detectives have been able to answer to her satisfaction, and which she tries dearly not to dwell on, is the hammer, found sitting on the floor in the closet where he'd waited. Sometimes, when the clock is nearing some small morning hour and her mind is fuzzy and desperate for sleep, she can almost convince herself that the tool belonged to a long-ago ex-boyfriend, hidden buried in bric-a-brac at the back of a closet, grabbed by the man in a moment of confused and terrified self-defense. The truth was, she'd never seen the thing in her life. 